Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's imagine what a 2050 can look like that is a better version of today. This problem or challenge is also an opportunity, and we need some courage right now. Welcome to National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, we bring you the seventh installment of the Women in National Security miniseries, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Our hosts Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia are joined by Sophia Hamblin-Wong, Chief Operating Officer of Mineral Carbonation International. Sophia shares her perspectives on the security challenges presented by climate change and the opportunities to be found in new technology emerging from Australian enterprises. Enjoy. I'm Gabe Brotman. Hey everybody, I'm Meg Tapia. And it's great to have you here. We begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians on the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Now, we've got a very special guest today and we're very excited to have you as part of the conversation. Sophia Hamblin-Wong is a global leader in the development of climate change technology and one of just a few women leading the international development of carbon capture. She's a modern-day alchemist. Earlier this year, she was appointed a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, one of only two representatives from Australasia and Oceania. She's currently the Chief Operating Officer of Mineral Carbonation International, which is a company that develops sustainable materials that incorporate CO2 emissions into building products. Sophia, you are a regular and much-loved presenter here at the National Security College. Why is climate change a national security issue? Thank you so much for having me. It's a, always a, a great pleasure to be here in the in the college. Climate change absolutely intersects with every part of our life. It intersects with health. It intersects with infrastructure, and absolutely, national security is one of the most important things that it intersects with. I remember hearing uh, Indira Naidu speak at uh, one of the She Leads conferences. This must have been ten years ago or so. And uh, she spoke about how every day when she read the news, she used to report on rising sea levels and more extreme weather events. And in the same breath, she would then also be talking about displaced people, women um, suffering in in Bangladesh and, and, and other places. And she said that it was absolutely crystal clear to her that these issues are related to each other, but that it wasn't being connected enough by everyday people. And she had decided to spend more of her career um, talking about climate change and and displacement and, and other things. And I remember thinking about that quite deeply because I think at the time I was studying corporate social responsibility at ANU. I was engaged in a PhD program at the time. And I thought, wow, really, we need to get this climate 
changed thing. We really need to get it under control because it is going to exacerbate all kinds of problems in in our society. So in my view, I think Australia is at the forefront of climate change risk. We see floods and fires, not just here in Australia, but also in the Asia-Pacific region. And what I've started thinking about is, you know, we think about national security, we think about the military, transnational crime, intelligence. Do we need to start thinking more broadly about the idea of national security and including things like climate change as a risk as part of that? Absolutely. And I think we are broadening out those definitions. You can even just see from the different conferences and discussions that we're having in Australia that we've clued on to the fact that it's something that we can't ignore. And if left untreated, we will be having way more costs in our system, way more variables that we can't control for. And I think in Australia in particular, we've become very aware of that after the bushfires. I would say working in climate technology and climate action, there's a definite period of before the bushfires and after the bushfires in terms of public sentiment and understanding that climate risk in terms of both financial and security and and everything absolutely needs to be considered. You're a very strong advocate on diversity in a range of areas, not just in terms of climate change, but also in terms of social housing, in terms of aged care, Mm -hmm. in terms of access to food and saving food and eliminating land infill. Can you just explain how climate change impacts inequality and what we need to do to overcome that? So my career and my personal experience have woven together quite an interesting way, which I can go into. Um, I think that working in the circular economy and trying to ensure that our systems have less waste and more efficiency embedded in them and having systems that are designed in a way that's sustainable for a better 2100, say. I've always felt very strongly about communities working together to ensure that there's no one who is hungry and everyone has housing, all of those things that are at the the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I suppose. That was where I, I very first saw my passion and my career as, as addressing those very um, basic level needs. And that's why I've always been interested in, yeah, food waste and social housing and aged care. However, the more study I did and the more I understood the um, the corporate system and the way that our structures are created, our legal structures even in Australia and in the world, I realised that there's a lot of ingrained self-interest in terms of corporate profits and the way that the system is designed to pursue maximum shareholder value at the expense of all other stakeholders in many cases. And when I I sat back and really looked at the way that I saw the system working, I thought, if we allow that the way that the system is currently working, which doesn't price externalities properly, it will lead to the whole of the system having instability and it'll lead to all of the different things that I just mentioned becoming worse overall. So I want to go into your business and what you do 
to be a real part of this change and 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 kind of implementing this sustainability agenda. I am um, for our listeners holding in my hand a rectangular cube, I suppose is how you'd describe it. It's not very big. It's about a quarter of the size of a Rubik's cube and it's gray and it looks a little bit like concrete. Now, Sophia, you make these. What is this? What am I holding? So what you're holding is a low carbon brick that we have created at at the company I work for, MCI Carbon. We actually, we specialize in transforming carbon dioxide into a solid form. And then we process that solid form of carbonate into um, cements, plasterboards, and a myriad of other materials. So the idea is that we'll be, um, that brick that you're holding there, it's a 30% reduction in emissions for um, the cement from cement material, but we're also creating negative emissions building materials. So the idea is to get companies to one, capture their emissions and to turn those emissions into something useful in the circular economy, something that has negative emissions or low emissions properties, because um, as we have many competing demands in the future, we'll be needing to both reduce emissions and also reduce the carbon footprint of our infrastructure. That actual brick that you're holding there, I took that to Glasgow at to COP26 and, um, yeah, a, a version of it as well I took to Davos in 2020. So it's so travelled the world with you. It's tr- that one has travelled <laughs> the world with me. But, yeah, we have a, a lots of different things that we're working on as well, like carpet backing and laundry detergent, paper. We can really embed carbon dioxide into um, a lot of everyday life use cases. And so that's what the business is trying to work with companies on, um, creating products that can be used and sold for profit. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is carbon dioxide isn't a waste, it's a resource. That's exactly right. Right. Okay. And you're not only role modelling for other businesses in this area, but you've also, you've got a business. So how's business going? Are, Are people... Yep. <laughs> jumping on board in terms of buying the product. Business is going extremely well. Um, the company started around 15 years ago and I joined as the first employee nine years ago. And in that time, we've had to weather quite a lot of uncertainty and many storms around. Well, we started with an emissions trading scheme from a Gillard government. That's how we got our very first funding. And and it was really quite clear where the federal government of Australia saw the role of carbon technology in the future. And then we had a fair few years of not really knowing a clear direction, but having funding in that time. And now we've come out of our R&D phase into a reality where we have a pilot plant that's producing these materials every day in Newcastle. And we just um, pitched at... COP26 in Glasgow and one number one clean tech in the world from a field of 2,700 That's companies. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. It was, um, it's something that I'm quite proud of because what you see there represents, you know, we've got 40 employees that are all engineers and geologists all working together on the mission, which is creating climate technology that will be a part of the just transition for Australia. We really do need to create the industries that will employ the people 
in this interim period. And so I feel very strongly about that. Um, but since we won the COP26 Net Zero Technology Centre pitch battle, we've had this insane uptick of interest from global customers and um, people looking to invest in the company, which is a real coup because Australia does have all of the amazing features that are needed to create technologies like these. Abundant access to renewable energy in the future. We have bulk processing capabilities and, and lots of land and just everything. I can see it so clearly. Everything can come together in this next 10, 20 years in order to create thriving industries that will help the rest of the world to decarbonize. I want to talk a bit about your involvement with the ANU as well, sharing all of this experience about climate change, sustainability, the change that needs to happen. And you're certainly very energetic and, mm. and I see the positivity and the hope around everything that you're saying. You're a technologist really, who's committed into corporate social sustainability. When the ANU called you and said, we'd really like to know more about the intersection between climate change and national security, what was your thought? How did you react? At first, I thought, I talk about so many different things. And is this relevant enough to my direct experience to be able to uh, communicate with an audience on an authoritative basis. I always uh, go through this process of, am I the right person to have this discussion? Is there a better person who I should pass the mic to in this case? And in this case, it was like, well, am I the best person to talk about national security and climate change? Well, not many people are having these discussions right now. What is my lived experience of one developing technology in the in industry and in the space and seeing the business as usual push back inertia from the corporate world? And also, uh, I have some lived experience of living through some climate events. And so I, I looked at the that and I, I do think that creating a human personal story and being able to link that back to national security was something that I think the delivery of the lecture that I did at the National Security College on climate and, and national security was received really well and it was really encouraging for me. So, yes, I think I was the right person to deliver that lecture at that time. And it, it also helped for me to build my confidence as well and my voice. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, you grew up in Caramine Beach in Queensland, which is right on the Great Barrier Reef. How did living so close to that sort of world heritage treasure shape your thinking on carbon technology and climate change? And also, how did living on Caramine Beach, your family background, how did that actually shape your thinking on inequality issues and driving you to overcome inequality? So I grew up in paradise, as you mentioned, and Caramine Beach is a um, just a really tiny 800-person town that the, our industries are basically fishing, farming, and tourism. And I for the first six years of my life, grew up in a caravan um, on the beach there. And then my mum became an, a, a live-in aged carer. So we lived with a elderly man in um, home until I went um, to university. Growing up there was amazing because the tropics is such a, a different place to Canberra. <laughs> Culturally, it's very yes, it different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm from Bobcatter country. I'm from a country where we grew up line dancing and doing, yeah, just it's very different to here. My mum was a single mum and she raised me with her sister who lived a couple of doors down. So I was raised by two pretty amazing women who put all of their energy into creating opportunities for me and ensuring that I never felt like uh, we didn't have much. I grew up with so much abundance. Even though we didn't have much money, we grew a lot of our own food. My mum and my auntie always baked and volunteered for the Red Cross and just giving back to the community was always a fundamental part of who we were and who we still are. And that give and take and the way that communities work in when it's smaller, I, I think really shaped who I am today. Mm. Now, I suppose when I was growing up, I saw the opportunity to help people directly on a one-on-one -on -one basis as really profound um, and volunteering at nursing homes and things like that was the best opportunity that I could see. And then I came down to ANU and I decided that I wanted to try to learn how to run a charity well. And in order to run a charity well, you need to learn how to run a business well. And you need to learn about, yeah, creating sustainable business models, even for an impact focus. Right at that time, we my home got hit by a Category 5 cyclone, 2006, and then in 2011, we got hit by another Category 5 cyclone. And I'm talking about like crazy destruction. You would have remembered when bananas hit, I yeah. think it was like $13 a kilo. And uh, all of, that was where, that's where I grew up. The house next door to mine blew away. My best friend's house a couple of doors down blew away. It was definitely, it was a really traumatic time. And around that time, that was when I was studying at ANU and just learning for the very first time about corporate social responsibility. And I was really looking at the emissions profile of the world and where the majority of the emissions come from. And by and large, the majority do come from the largest companies in the world. And so I started to zoom out and think, I, I do really want to help people and I want to help people directly. 
but potentially the best impact that I can have in the world is trying to incentivize those largest companies in the world to reduce their emissions because even a 1% reduction for those companies is worth millions of individual effort. It's interesting because growing up in, you know, going to public schools and growing up in a caravan and um, never really having our own home didn't really matter to me at all. But I do think that feeling strong in who I am and having a really good sense of community and understanding that I have something to contribute to other people, even though I didn't go to a fancy school, um, my ideas still count and we're all still individuals and humans and we all still should connect with each other. I think that that's been one of the the most profound building blocks that my mum and my auntie gave me in order to tackle this life. That's amazing. I want to speak to a young Sophia, if I can, who's community-minded and grew up in paradise. Did you ever imagine that you'd be on the world stage speaking to, you know, politicians and world leaders, being profiled in Time magazine about these issues and about the importance of hope and change? I think that young Sophia just thought that I'd just try to do my best every day and I never really set my sights on any kind of limit. I just thought, let's just tackle today in the best way that I can. Because when you grow up in far North Queensland, the best, well, at least for me, the best that I could have hoped for was to go to university in Townsville or Brisbane. It's already so expensive to travel within Queensland, let alone go interstate. It's, there are many barriers to engaging in the Australian context, let alone internationally. But I have always been internationally focused. I've always cared about cross-cultural engagement and learning about different countries. And so I guess on some level, I always knew I wanted to do the most that I could. And yeah, but I I think she'd be pretty, pretty stoked. (laughs) I imagine she'd be pretty proud of you. Just going back to the comment that you made, Sophia, about my ideas count, that is an incredibly empowering statement and it's a statement that not a lot of women can make and women are constantly trying to overcome the fact that my opinion doesn't matter or I'm not clever enough or I haven't done the research enough or I don't have enough degrees for that or I don't have the experience for that Mm -hmm. to actually have an opinion. Mm -hmm. So what tips do you have for our listeners in terms of really gaining the confidence and that hardcore belief that their ideas matter? How did you come to that realisation? How did you come to that sense of empowerment and and confidence to know that your ideas matter no matter what your background? I definitely had my years of feeling quite a lot of imposter syndrome Uh, where I felt that, hey, I'm the only person in this room that looks like me. Everybody else deserves to be here and I have to prove that my ideas are extra special or that they count or or being hard on myself for not um, having done more or having more experience or, or whatever it is. So I had my years of feeling like that for sure and everybody does. 
But there was a real turning point around uh, Davos in 2020 when I got asked to speak on a panel uh, at the World Economic Forum. And that one of the reasons why I was invited there was to inject a youth voice into forums that ordinarily don't have youth voices. And so that was an amazing opportunity, like a once in a lifetime opportunity for me. Uh, and when I got there, I had done all of this preparation uh, and and working on climate technology, even and in 2020, it was what we were doing was extra special then. And also I had stepped out of the bushfires. Like I, I was literally wearing my smoke mask onto the plane to, to fly to Davos and then ironically, um, coming back, I was wearing it again because um, that was the beginning of, of COVID. But I, I stepped into Davos having come from this crazy experience where Australia was burning and I uh, sat on this panel and it was in a room full of executives who were all talking about decarbonising the hard-to-abate sectors, so the steel, cement, chemicals and uh, mining industries in particular. And there were all of these people there who who were the traditional Davos crowd. So it was, I think that they refer to it as male, pale and stale. But it, it was, by and large, older white men who were saying, hey, yeah, we all commit to net zero by 2050, but what does that even really mean? And I realized that I was the only person in the room who was still going to be alive in 2050 let alone working in 2050. And uh, usually, uh, I think ordinarily, a, an, a, an imposter syndrome mindset would look at that and say, oh my gosh, they'll all wonder why Why do I deserve to be here because I, I'm different. But I actually realized that that's such an unbelievable strength in that audience because I was able to stand up and say, hey, let's imagine what a 2050 can look like that is a better version of today. This problem or challenge is also an opportunity. And we need some courage right now. And we need to be able to make those decisions that might be a little bit hard now, but will circumvent a um, world of harm in 2050. And finding my voice or, um, or feeling conviction in a room like that was really, it was, it was very empowering, I have to say. And maybe next year there'll be a much better person than me to um, to speak their truth to power. But that was my opportunity, and it definitely connected in a in a way that I'm I'm proud of. I love what you're saying about speaking truth to power. I think that's really powerful. I understand right before you went to Davos, you mentioned hopping on the plane, you had your mask on, and you'd just come from helping your brother protect your family home from embers because the bushfires were happening. How do you stay hopeful when that's happening? How do you not let challenge like that defeat you? That was a really hard time. My brother's property... Um, on Lake Jindabyne was under ember attack. And so, yeah, I had been helping to defend the property because the RFS had other um, priorities. And I think that that was one of the most scared I've ever been in my life in terms of there's so many unknowns in a bushfire situation. And I'm on the Climate Change Council of the ACT and we'd received so much data on what the potential impact of that day um, could have been. And 
I had been quite affected by the impending dread of the bushfires, also having lived through two months of sustained um, smoke, living in a share house where we didn't have good insulation in our house and not having the ability to upgrade in the same way as other people. Like, you know, these are all... The, all of this impacted on my resilience at the time where I always talk about climate hope. This is my, you know, my thing is there are things we can do. Hope is not lost, but we need to double down. We need to pull every lever. We need to do everything we can in order to get to a net zero 2050 and, and do it, that in a prosperous way. It was really hard though. I had a few moments where I needed to collect myself in Davos because you talk to people who are CEOs of companies that are very, very powerful. Um, They have profound ability to reduce and increase emissions. And they, at the end of the day, say things like, hey, I'd love to reduce my emissions, but unless my competitors are doing the same, like I just can't, I can't justify it because I have a fiduciary duty to shareholders to maximize profit. And unless governments legislate for us to have a level playing field, then there's nothing I can do. And I'm listening to that and my country is burning. And I just feel frustrated that the system isn't properly pricing the different externalities and the different costs of business. And so it took a little while for me to coalesce and to digest all of the different things that happened. At the time in Davos, I just survived, told my story, listened. I wrote a lot of things down and then I came home and I I had to just um, regroup and think that we, MCI and and me as, as a person, I think we've come out a, a lot more resilient at the end of it. So how did you actually go about regrouping and getting that strength again and that energy again and that resilience again to forge ahead? Uh, because you just go from strength to strength <laughs> to strength. You know, the most recent accolade has been this global leaders, this Young Global Leaders appointment, which is phenomenal. So how did you actually regroup after that that very personal Mm. tragedy and that confronting tragedy with your brother's property, but also the confronting conversations you had internationally? One of the things that I realised is that everybody is just motivated by um, whatever group of motivations that they have. Sorry to sound too basic, but People are usually either a a combination of self-interested and interested in their own neighbourhood. And one of the things that I did was a step back and look at all of the different people that I met and understood why they make the decisions that they make. Now, CEOs and chairmen and directors, they do have their duty to shareholders and also They care about their reputation. And uh, at the time, it was at Davos, uh, I I saw Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump both speak within an hour of each other when they had their, their own messages. And Greta's message was, we need to immediately divest from fossil fuels right now. And Donald Trump's message was, 
don't believe in the prophets of doom, technology will save us. I sat in the room and listened to these individuals speak and then I, and I thought, oh my gosh, I know that we do need to divest in fossil fuels, but it's not going to happen overnight. We don't just turn off fossil fuels, but also we can't just rely on technology to get us there. So I'm somewhere in between those two extremes. And so one of the things that I did when I got home from Davos was uh, really just look at, yeah, the way that I communicate with everyday people and understand where they're coming from and how to create an inclusive or maybe reimagine what an inclusive future will look like, which incorporates people's interests now and imagines what their interests could be in the future. And that was an unbelievably important time because we'd had the bushfires in Australia. So I think everyday people were way more open to having these conversations than they were before. And mm -hmm. in terms of reimagining that future, do you now include that in the, the storytelling and the conversations you have and the pitches that you do overseas and here? <laughs> yes, absolutely. There have been a a number of different opportunities that have continued to come along that have been absolutely insane. One of the opportunities for narrative and dialogue that came about was the COP26 opportunity. And I'll, I'll use an example there. MCI has been growing gradually and getting a lot of um, traction with international steel and cement in particular companies. We had been humming along nicely and then all of a sudden, right before COP26, I got this phone call from the federal government saying, hey, would you like to showcase at COP26? It's only in two weeks, but we'd love for you to come. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, absolutely, we would love to do that. And so we applied to go and uh, we were locked down in, at the time in Australia and our visas got denied by the government. And so a week before COP26, I got another phone call from the federal government saying, do you need us to get the prime minister's office to expedite your visa to go? Also, um, can you make 30 more blocks so that the prime minister can give them out at COP26 and you speak about climate technology there? And I was, I was like, um, <laughs> yes. So we, um, we got our technical team, like our, our amazing team in Newcastle. They just worked around the clock to create these negative emissions building materials and they drove them in a COVID safe way to a halfway point to Canberra. Our CEO drove to that point, picked up the, the box and we put them straight onto the prime minister's plane to fly to COP26. When I got to COP26, I was the only person who was allowed to go in the end because it was it was it was both extremely expensive but also impossible. I had to sleep on the floor of a friend's lounge room in Glasgow because there was no accommodation. It was just a really difficult time. Um but when I got there there was this crazy interest in the technology in how does the technology help the transition how when we look at the steel and cement industry in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, what does it look like? They don't have clear pathways to decarbonising, particularly in the next 20 years. Our story of being an Australian technology that's been developed out of you know, Newcastle and Canberra, with Newcastle being the largest coal port in the world – 
it, it really connected with people. And I had a line of people waiting to learn about MCI at COP26. And that was for the whole 12 days. It was the most unbelievable experience of my life. And being able to use the industrial transition story, but also creating technologies out of Australia in in this very interesting time has all come together in order to create this the success that we're experiencing right now. That's a wonderful story. And you're clearly changing the narrative about what is national security and what does it include? I want to, before we wrap up, I want to ask you for your final thoughts on something. You're using your profile quite clearly as a platform for change, and that's amazing. What do you say to other men and women about how they can use their power and their profile or position to be able to affect change? So one thing is that I don't think that I ever planned out my career or my profile, I probably wouldn't use, I'd find that really hard to say, but I I wouldn't, I haven't planned out my profile to achieve a certain outcome. I've just, um, I've done the things that spoke to me, that lit my fire, that built my skills in a way that has all come together today um, to create the the job and the role that I do. When I was studying my undergrad at ANU, um, my job right now didn't exist. There's nothing that you could have studied to create the skills that I use on an everyday basis with at MCI. What I did was I learned, I did a, an international business degree and then um, my postgraduate Research was in corporate social responsibility, but on the side, I volunteered in social impact um, campaigns and I learned how to develop innovations that have high return on investment and high social impact. And I worked on many other side projects that all contributed one hundredth of the skills that I needed that eventually created the mix that I have today. And so I really do think that following the thing that really um, makes you passionate or fulfills your sense of purpose, I don't think that you can go wrong there. And it doesn't matter if you're um, combining hospitality and climate or, you know, what whatever it is, I, I think that the, the jobs of the future are still coming together and the perfect platform or voice for you in the future could absolutely not exist yet and you could be creating that right now. Sophia, thank you for your time, uh, but for your optimism, for your courage, for your hope. I hope that we see more of you in the years to come and that, we will. you know, Davos isn't the highlight, COP26 isn't the highlight. I say Sophia for Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia is just amazing. Her passion for sustainability, her positivity, her hope. There were a couple of things she said that um, really resonated with me. One was about speaking truth to power. The other was her statements around my ideas count. Yeah, that's really I really, really love that. It's really, really powerful. It's that sense of self-actualization and self-awareness. Yeah, it's, it's a really important point because... So many women, I know, I'm constantly trying to get women to contribute to a range of publications in national security and 
they reluctant, oh, I don't really have a strong idea on this particular thing, or no, I want to be interested in my ideas, or oh, I don't know whether I can uh, I can put up with the criticism that may emanate from that, in addition to the praise. But uh, and so that really, really resonated with me. I really love her message about uh, with the will, anyone can make change. And yes, it could be at the local level, but you never know. It might be at the global level for you one day as well. Yeah, well, she started at the local level in her community with uh, led by those extraordinarily strong women, her mother and her aunt. And uh, she started to make a difference at that local level and then took it global. Absolutely. So thank you, everyone, for taking some time out of your day to be with us. Be sure to hop on the website and nominate for a free ticket to our end-of-year live podcast recording at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra at the end of the year. You'll have the chance to meet some incredible women, including Gay and myself, (laughs) who are working across our national security landscape, including many of the guests that we've had on the pod. We hope today's conversation has shown you that there's more to national security than the traditional view of hardened security, transnational crime, the military and intelligence. We hope it's inspired you and given you hope. National security is about protecting our country from risk. And climate change is, in my view, absolutely a risk that we need to deal with. Until next time, thanks for listening.